And our final reading is from Romans chapter 5, starting from page 549. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Uh, well, good morning. It's, it's good to be with you again. Now, I'm using the NIV, but it looks pretty similar to the ESV, but that'll just, if you're following along on an ESV, there might be a couple of things that are a bit different, but not too much of this, on this passage. Well, I want to begin with two personal, um, but rhetorical questions for you to think about. The first one is, are you confident of your salvation now? Uh, in other words, are you confident that you're right with God now, that, that God is pleased with you uh, and the relationship that he has with you? How's your relationship going? I don't know about you, but for me, I, it wasn't that long ago, I found myself thinking, oh, I struggle. Here I am, I'm doing this full-time ministry thing and I'm meant to have it all together, but I just... Deny. I just fail to do the things that I know God wants me to do. I struggle with sin. I feel like I keep struggling in the same ways. And I just, how could God possibly be happy with me? Could, could I really be confident that I was right with him? Do those thoughts ever cross your mind as well? Or maybe you think, is it even possible to be confident that you're right with God? So that's the first question. Are you confident of your salvation now? And the second question is, are you confident of your salvation in the future? In other words, on the day of judgment, are you confident that you're going to get through, that, that God will welcome you into heaven? If it's hard enough to be confident now, how much harder is it in the future? Will I make it? Will God possibly accept me? When, you know, I feel like I'm making some progress, but then I fall backwards and I give in to sin. And can we even know? Is it even possible to know now about a future judgment? 
had a couple of the students, and we have a number of non-Christian students that regularly come to our um, events at uni, particularly international students. And this year we've probably got oh, five to ten, um, and they're just interested in finding out about Christianity. And I remember a few years ago we had two of them, and they, they always thought we were arrogant because they got, obviously they, they understand, they, they got the impression that we were confident of our salvation, and so in their minds, we must be arrogant people because they didn't understand what we're actually believing and thinking. And that was that the reason we can be confident both now and in the future isn't dependent on us. You know, these, to these students thought that we, what we were saying was that we're, we're, we're going to be really good people and we do all the right things, but it's not to do with us. Our confidence wasn't based on us, but rather on God and what he had done. And there was a moment in time when these two particular students suddenly understood the good news of Jesus and realised that's why they're confident. They're not arrogant, but it's because of what God has done for them. And the first thing that we see here that God has done for us in Romans 5 is he has justified us. In verse 1 there, chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith. Uh, it's always difficult coming into a passage when you haven't looked at the context. Um, but if you uh, know Romans, let me just give you a quick summary. In Romans 1 to 4, Paul is clearly explaining the good news of the gospel. He begins by describing the human state, that how we've rebelled against God, we've rejected him, we've gone our own way, and as a result, we're all under God's wrath. We deserve death and we deserve judgment. And he says even the Jews are in the same situation because, yes, they had the law, but they didn't keep the law. In fact, the law was there to show them that they couldn't keep the law. It was to reveal their sin. And so in chapter, uh, we see that sort of everyone is guilty before God. But in chapter 3, we see this great news that there's now a way of being right with God that is apart from law, that is totally separate from law, and that is by faith in Jesus Christ. In his death and resurrection, which we're going to celebrate soon at Easter next weekend, Jesus has paid the penalty for our sins, the penalty of death and God's judgment for us. And so through his resurrection, we're, uh, and we're declared right, the penalty's been paid. And the evidence of that is Jesus' resurrection. And so God declares us right with him. It's, it's a declaration. We are justified. God sees us just as if we hadn't sinned. He no longer holds our sin against us. It's like a, you go into a court um, with your alleged guilt or maybe real guilt and the judge says you are free. That's what justification means and it's made possible because of what Jesus has done on the cross for us. He can deal with sin and deal with God's judgment and allow us to go free because of what he, that he took it for us. And so when you trust in Jesus by faith, when you trust and believe that he did these things for you and you trust him, 
then you have been justified. Therefore, since we have been justified, it's one of those, has, it's a completed thing. Like, I have an education degree. I don't know where it is. It's probably in some cupboard somewhere, and it doesn't, doesn't affect my life too much, but I have it. It's done. You, you, I can lose it, or you might steal it, but it's done. I've, I have it. We have been justified. And this is a completed reality for everyone that's trusted in Jesus. I hope you're clear on this, because in our passage today, he spells out all the things that we have because we have been justified. So I've got four points this morning. So if you're taking notes, there's four points. The first two are short, the second one's long, and the third is medium. Since you have been justified, number one, we see you have peace with God. You have peace with God. Since you've been justified, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, by peace here, he's not referring to an inner peace or an inner tranquility. That would be the peace of God. No, this is peace with God. You, are, you and God are no longer at war. You're no longer enemies. There's no hostility anymore. The war is over. You are reconciled. You're at peace. Now, this peace didn't happen because we read our Bible every day or we come here to church. We've done 51 times a year or because we do this or because we do that. It came about through our Lord Jesus Christ. In his death and resurrection, he's brought an end to the hostility and established peace. Have you comprehended that? That you and God are at peace? Or do you still see God as this wrathful, angry God that punishes sinners? Well, yes, he does punish sinners, and he will, but not so with you. You are at peace. Sure, we let him down. Sure, we do the wrong thing, but we are at peace. We're in relationship. We're his children, in fact. So we stand, we, firstly, we have peace with God. Secondly, we stand in grace in verse 2. Uh, we've gained peace through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we gain access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. We've been given this access into God's grace. It's where we stand. Now, grace means an undeserved favour, getting something good that you didn't deserve. We stand in God's grace. That's where we are in relation to God. We live in the realm of his grace. And it's secure. It's not precarious. We don't fall in and out of grace like, like uh, maybe servants do before a king or politicians before the people. It's a secure standing. It's an ongoing standing. It means that God always treats us with grace. So he listens to our prayers. He forgives us when we ask him. We don't have to prove ourselves. We don't have to maintain the relationship. 
we stand in grace. We have peace with God. Secondly, we stand in grace. And thirdly, we have the hope of the glory of God. And in verse, the second part of verse 2 there, we stand in grace, in the grace we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Now, boast here is, it suggests confidence, assurance, certainty, but also joy. It's sort of like a joyfully confident might be a better way of understanding it. We can and we should be confident of what? Well, the hope of glory. We boast in the hope of the glory of God. Now, hope doesn't mean like we use it today. I really hope it doesn't rain. That's just like a sort of hope, but it might rain. It could, it could not. No, biblical hope is it's confident. It's going to happen, but it's, it's in the future. And it's the hope of the glory of God. What's that? Well, in, in chapter 3, verse 23, it talks about we sinned and fell short of God's glory. And I take it it's that sense of where we were in a state of God-likeness, not, not in terms of we were God, but we were, we were perfect. We were without sin. But now we've lost that because of our rebellion and sin. We're now in a world under God's judgment, but we, and, and we suffer for it. We have this... Uh, natural inclination towards self and, and sin. But we see here we have the hope of the glory of God that we will once again be restored, perfect like God, in his glorious new heaven and new earth. I remember people used to say, I, I, I'm looking forward to glory, being with Jesus, with the Father, being like him. We have this confident, glorious hope Of the glory of God. So how can we be confident of this hope? What is the basis of this hope? Well, the first thing he says here is that the first, it's a bit weird, but he says that a strange strengthener of our hope is suffering. Sort of a strange basis for hope. But if we look carefully, we see that suffering strengthens our hope. And so that's why Paul says we're rejoicing. He says, um, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Because we know, this is in verse 3, chapter 5, verse 3, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. So suffering, we see suffering produces endurance or perseverance. Now, that's the idea of you are someone that can keep going when life's hard. You can keep pushing on. And, and so if you've gone through hard things and you've kept going, you're sort of building up those endurance muscles. And so saying suffering helps us to endure, to keep going. And if we're to continue in this Christian life... In this world, in a sinful world, we need endurance. The Christian life's a marathon, and suffering helps us to build those endurance muscles that persevere. And this leads, he says, and produces perseverance or endurance, 
And then it says character. Now here when he talks about character, he means like a tested character, where you're someone that has been shown to be able to keep going. Oh, here's a confession I used to love. My grandfather did as well. I used to love reading, oh, I do love reading Westerns. Um, and in, we in Westerns, it's all about the cowboys and you know, rounding up the cattle. I was listening to the radio recently and I had a I interviewed a guy that was a, a muster up here in the Territory and I sort of related because I'd read all these Westerns. And if you're going to do a, a cattle drive, uh, it was going to be dangerous. And so uh, you're going to need men, but you, you only took men that you knew would be able to handle the pressure. You know, when the Indians attacked or a, a bull turned on them, they would stand firm and not run for the hills. And so they would only take people that they knew had this tested character, had this reputation of being able to stand firm when life was hard. And that's the sort of thing he's talking about here. And so if we endure, we go through suffering, helps us to endure, and that helps us to build this tested character. And then finally he says hope. It seems weird to me that in the end, the end of this list is hope. I would have thought, when I first read it, I thought, you'd think it'd be like, you know, the godly Christian or the, you know, the, 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 you know, your mature or something like that. But it's not. It says hope. Why hope? Well, I want to suggest that as we go, as we go through suffering, as we persevere, as we keep going... It forces us, these hard times, force us to put our hope in what will last. You see, suffering, what suffering often does is it gets, takes away all our hopes. We might have a hope of being healthy and we lose it. We might have hope of having children and we can't. We might have hope of getting a job and we still don't have one. Hope, there's a lot of things that, that don't last... And so as these things fall apart, he's saying, hold on. It leads us to hold on to the one thing that is secure in this world, and that is the hope of the glory of God. I don't know about you, but I don't, when, when do you find yourself praying more? When life is going really well or when trouble comes? when that family member gets cancer or a close friend dies or when we get sick or injured, it reminds us of our frailty and our mortality and, and God willing, it forces us to put our hope and trust in the one thing that won't let us down and that is the hope of the glory of God. And he tells in verse 5 that this hope does not put us to shame. It won't disappoint. In the first century, um, the mortality rate was, you know, most, a lot of people would die at a young age. Death was all around. And hope was seen as a dangerous thing. You didn't want to hope because hopes disappointed. Hopes failed. But here is the hope that won't disappoint. Here's a hope that won't put us to shame or let us down. Why is that? 
So we see the first strengthener of hope. So going back, we're still on point three. We have the hope of the glory of God. And the first thing, we saw that a strange strengthener of hope is suffering because it causes us to put our trust in the one thing that won't let us down. But secondly, the ultimate basis of our hope is the love of God. Why, does, why, does, um, why won't this hope disappoint us or put us to shame? Because of the love of God. We see that in verse 5. Because, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out, our, out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who he's given us. You see, the reason this hope won't let us down is because God loves us. It's because of the steadfast love of God. The reason the hope won't let us down is because God won't let us down. His love will never give up on us. So how do we know then that God loves us? If the love of God is the, base of this, the second, second base of this hope, how do we know God loves us? Well, firstly, he tells us in our heart. Because his, his love has been poured out, we see in the end of verse 5, he's poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he's given us. Have you ever had that experience where you just know deep down that God loves you? For some of you, it might have been when you, when you first became a Christian, it suddenly all clicked and you realise that I am loved by God. It's, this is a, it tells us here, this is the work of the Spirit within us to convict us that God loves us. It's not a natural thing. It's a work of the Spirit to do that. It's this experiential, subjective awareness that I'm loved by God. It's not something you could prove to your friends or explain objectively, but you know within that God loves me. That's the work of the Spirit. So that's the first one. God tells us in our hearts. But there is also an objective external proof that God loves us, which is the second way we see God loves us, and that is that God tells us in our history. Look at verse 6 to 8. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God demonstrated, he proved his love for us by his death, by Jesus' death on the cross. Now, to understand this, we need to understand love. You see, the, the essence of love is about giving. You know, John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he gave. And we know love's about giving, don't we? You know, we all just have to think about acts of love that you've experienced. And it's usually someone giving something to you. I love that book. I don't know if you've read it, but that book, Five Love Languages, where it talks about different ways that we feel loved. It could be, you know, you feel love when people spend time with you, quality time, or you might feel love when, by affection, or it could be encouragement, words of praise, or gifts, or acts of service. But it's all essentially about giving. So love's about giving. And the costliness of the love, here's the love formula, if you like. The love formula is how much did it cost the person 
versus and and how much did they deserve it? It's I'm, I'm not great at maths. There's probably can someone can work out a formula for us and put it up and let us know at the end. But so the more if we if it's really costly and we really didn't deserve it, then that's a high degree on the love scale. <clears throat> so um, I'll give an example. I decide to show love to my wife, so I, um, when I'm coming home from work, I have to go to Coles and I see some flowers on special for $5. I thought, I'm going to grab those, it's not, it's not out of my way, and I'll take them home. They're half dead and dying, but they're cheap. <clears throat> um, pretty low on the love scale, whereas... I remember when we were dating, I was fickle and I wasn't sure, I was a bit worried about the whole commitment thing. And so I, a couple of times I broke up with Rachel, my now wife, and straight after one of these, about the second or third time, I think it was, um, I wasn't exactly hugely worthy at that point, but it was my birthday that week and Rachel bought me this really expensive Bible. So totally undeserving expensive gift, much, much, much higher on the love scale than my flowers. <laughs> so the more the gift costs and the, more, and the less they deserve it, the greater the love. So with that formula then, what did Jesus do? How does his love, what measure is it? Where is it on the scale? Well, what was the costliness of the gift? Well, Christ died for us. We're going to be thinking about this on Friday as we think about Jesus' crucifixion and just the pain and agony. But even worse was you just think of Jesus in the garden, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here was the wrath of God going on Jesus, the under... The, the, the ultimate sacrifice, his life. And we see that there, don't we? He says, you know, sometimes people might die for, and we do, occasionally someone might die for a good person, you know. We do hear stories of that, where someone sacrificed their life for someone they love. But here is Jesus' enemies. Jesus huge, gave everything, the ultimate sacrifice. And what was the recipient? What were we like? Well, we're described here as sinners in verse 8. Ungodly, not loving God, living in rebellion, enemies. There was this deep hostility, powerless. So we see we were utterly undeserving, utterly helpless, and Jesus, God gave Jesus the ultimate sacrifice for us. And so as we go through trials and pain and hardship, as they do often leave us perplexed and wondering what God is doing and whether he's abandoned us or whether we can trust him after all, in the midst of that, we're to look to the cross. Because the cross is where we see God loves us. That's his I love you sign. That's where he has demonstrated his love once and for all. 
as we talked about last week, material blessings, health, wealth, children, they're not God's promised absolute sign of his love. He may give them to us, but they're not his big I love you sign. It's the cross. It's at the cross where we see God loves us to bits. Well, hopefully from what we've seen so far then, we shouldn't, shouldn't be any doubt that about our salvation now or in the future. But to make absolute certainty of this, Paul finishes with two arguments to drive home the certainty of our future salvation. And so the fourth point is your future salvation is guaranteed. So we've seen we have peace with God. We stand in grace. We have the hope of the glory of God. We see that is seen because God loves us, which is we feel through the spirit and because we've seen it in the cross. And because God loves us, we can have confidence that he will fulfill his promises. And finally, he says, your salvation, your future salvation is guaranteed. Now, one thing you just need to be aware of is that in the Bible, salvation is described as an ongoing... It's it's described in sort of three ways. I am saved, I'm being saved, and I will be saved. And so the theological words are justification, sanctification, and glorification. And so... So when you know, the preacher gets up and says, you're saved, well, it could be that when, we're, when we trust in Jesus, we're justified, we're declared right with God, but we're also being saved because we're not yet perfect, we're in Christ, we've got all the benefits of being in Christ, but we're still, it's an ongoing process of growing to be the people that he's already made us to be. But then there's a, we'll be finally saved when, we're in, when we see him, when we meet him, and we're perfect. We'll no longer struggle with sin, and that's glorification that we look forward to. And so in verse 9 and 10, um, Paul's using, if this happened, then this is, and how much more will this happen argument? For example, if you're a parent here, and you love your children when they're ratty and tired and disobedient, how much more will you love them when they do everything you ask and they clean the house for you and they haven't been asked and they do all these things? It's that sort of thing. If, if, you, if this, then how much more that? And so we see in verse 9, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him. In other words, if Jesus gave up his life so that we could be right with God, how much more will he save us from God's wrath in the future? It would just be absurd to think that Jesus would give up everything, including his very life for us, to make us right with God and then just abandon us on judgment day, now that he's alive. Or he says it in another way in verse 10, For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? In other words, if as enemies we were reconciled, if when we hated God, when we despised him, we didn't want a bar of him, Jesus gave his life to reconcile us, 
How much more, now that we're reconciled, now that we're friends, will he save us in the future? If Jesus loved us enough to die for us while we hated him, how much more is he going to ensure that we get to heaven now that we're friends? What God has already done is more than sufficient evidence to give us abundant confidence that he will save us on judgment day so we can have confidence in the future because of what God has done in the past. So you can be confident you're going to heaven. And so what's his big response? What's the big application? I want to suggest it's this. We says it several times. Rejoice. Rejoice. It's all been done for us. He says it again, rejoice with confidence. We, not only this, but we also, but he talks about this idea, we boast in God with his joyful rejoicing, assure, assured confidence, having hope. We're to be people full of joy and confidence. I'm really glad those students um, could see that we were confident of our salvation um, because it's true, but I'm even more glad that they realised it was only because of what Jesus had done. It wasn't because we were saying we were really good people. Well, let me finish with a story. It's about James Scott. Uh, this happened a fair while ago. Uh, James Scott was an Australian doctor and he was... Walking in the Himalayas, it was in December in 1991. Uh, what began as a day hike across the Himalayas towards Kathmandu quickly turned into a nightmare when the snow began to fall uh, and he and his companions split up and got lost. And so James found himself totally lost, utterly exhausted in the midst of a heavy snowfall. He managed to get himself under a rock overhang where he was to stay for the next 43 days. For 43 days and nights, he lay there in extreme freezing temperatures with inadequate clothing, no food, and little chance of being found dead or alive. You could hardly imagine a more horrible situation. So how do you respond? Was he bitter and angry at God, blamed God for this terrible ordeal? No, he, he wrote a letter to his fiancée. They obviously found him. Um, and this is what he said in the letter. He said, Believe me, there is a Christian God, and I know he's going to take care of me after this life. Please continue to have faith in him, to trust him and to love him. I know he exists and this knowledge has made me very comfortable. I have no fear of death. It's an unbelievable response, isn't it, in this terrible situation. Friends, I want to suggest that James Scott could respond this way because he'd taken hold of these truths of Romans 5, 1 to 11. He, he knew he had peace with God. He knew that God loved him, that God would not forsake him, but would bring him into the glory that he had promised. 
And so he didn't fear death. He held on to this hope and rejoiced, trusting God. Well, I really hope we're never in that situation. It's pretty extreme. But I've no doubt that we're going to face our own trials and troubles. The question is, how will we respond? Will we respond in this same way? Will we take hold of these tremendous truths and rejoice no matter what life throws at us? Because we have a relationship with a God who loves us and has promised to take us to heaven with him forever. And as Paul will say in Romans later, nothing is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ. So let us rejoice. Amen.